Welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lukas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. In this episode, I'm speaking to Gwyn Warnsbro, the executive director of Partners for Youth Empowerment. We're going to talk about different stages in her life, from when she was working in policymaking and international development to her current activities that are all about bringing arts-based methods into all kinds of educational spaces. Even though I don't consider myself as a very artistic person, I've seen Quinn in action and know how powerful her work is. So enjoy the conversation. In your work, you focus on, on educators, on trainers, um, on people who work with young people. And I was wondering what kind of skills they need to make this different kind of education a reality. Yes. Yeah. Great. So um, there's kind of a, a range of skills that we focus on in our work with, um, with teachers and youth workers, facilitators, um, to really be those kinds of adults that young people thrive around. So, for example... Um, that we do a lot of work with teachers and, and youth workers, facilitators, um, really on a process of um, self-awareness and self-knowledge. So that teachers and youth workers and, and people who work with young people are really aware and know themselves to the extent that they are able to, they have an awareness about, you know, what they are kind of bringing into their work with young people. So self-awareness is one thing that we work on. Um, empathy and kind of a range of social-emotional skills. So adults who can really deeply listen to a young person, who can empathize and put themselves in, in that young person's shoes, who can hold a, a safe space of non-judgment is the kind of adult that young people then start to open up to. They start to build trust with. And we also work a lot on communication skills and being able to speak authentically with young people. And as you know, you know, we work with a lot of teenagers and teenagers have a very, very specialized radar for sussing out people who are not really speaking their truth. And so we, we do a lot of work with, um, with practitioners to really speak authentically, speak from their place of truth. And that is another thing that uh, we see that young people are craving, are craving that ability to, um, to connect with adults also on, a, on this deeper level. This process of adults really preparing themselves to work really well with young people, to meet young people where they are rather than where the adult wants them to be and responding to that. So another thing that we do a lot in our work is we work through the whole world of expressive arts. So we incorporate a lot of creative practice and we work a lot with adults to connect to their own source of creativity. We operate from a premise that we are all creative and that we, when we tap into our creative resources, we, it can transform the way that we work with youth and, and with groups in general. And so, and what we find is especially with youth and, um, you know, particularly in programs with, with teenagers, for example, young people respond really positively to adults who are alive to their own sense of creativity, their own sense of purpose and their passion for life. And that's what you see if you can think about like, you know, the most influential teachers, for example, that you had in your life. 
chances are that they were they were this kind of a person who was able to kind of their passion for what they taught was infectious and they really were able to communicate, you know, on a much more deeper, meaningful level with young people. So those are some of the, the skills that we work on in our in our trainings. They're very experiential trainings. So we try to get adults out of their heads and more into their, you know, having a felt experience of what it is like to have a transformative experience. And that's kind of what our first level training is about giving the adults a felt sense of, of what it's like to be in a safe, supportive community where you're taking creative risks, you're being seen and, and heard by your peers, and, uh, and you're connecting deeply with those around you so that those adults can then recreate those transformative experiences for the young people that they work with. Mm. Yeah, I'm very curious about the, the creativity and arts aspect. But before I get there, there's actually one other thing I wanted to go back to, which was what you said about authenticity. Because to me, it seems that in part, certainly it's about self-awareness and kind of figuring out how to be authentic. But maybe in part, it's also about a mindset that authenticity might conflict with a certain sense of professionalism. Um, do, you, do you see such a conflict in some of the participants? And how do you resolve that? Well, I think there's, that's an interesting question because I think there's some, this gets into adult youth relationships where in some places, for example, um, that we work. Uh, so for example, we've done a lot of work in Greece and Cyprus with teachers. And this is not just exclusive to Greece and Cyprus, but it's just, those are the, the places that kind of come to my mind where the teaching profession and the role of the teacher really is to be the figure of power and authority in a classroom. And um, so we started doing some teacher training that we call creative classroom with teachers in, in, um, in Cyprus, for example. And they came to us, they said, yeah, we're having so many problems getting our, our young people motivated. We're getting, we're having problems, you know, with getting some of the quieter ones to participate in class. And in certain parts of, of Cyprus, there's a, there's quite a large migrant population that it lives quite separately from the the kind of mainstream Cypriot society. We're having problems kind of bringing those kids in. And what you say about, you know, speaking authentically and authenticity, potentially generating conflict or, you know, kind of somehow being a threat, I think it's the, the way that we see it. So, for example, these teachers in Cyprus, they say, oh, well, we can't do creative games in a classroom because that will you know, kind of put our, our authority into question, or I can't speak, you know, in other, any, any other way, except for kind of, in a, you know, as the authority and figure of power in the classroom, because that will undermine my, the way that my students see me and, and that I, that they relate to me. But what we find is, for example, when a teacher in that situation, and this is very interesting experience over, over an academic year that we worked with a, this group of teachers, And they came back to us and they said, all of a sudden, we have built, we find that bonds between us and our students are much stronger. That uh, when we really sit down and listen to our students, when we speak from a place of authenticity that is um, open, acknowledging your truth and open to hearing the truth of others, that when we start to bring in these creative, more dynamic methods, we also, the, the whole class environment changes. 
to one that's much more supportive, one that young people want to enter into, one that these kids who don't normally participate all of a sudden are participating, and one that is kind of building a community, a really positive community spirit in the classroom with all the kids, you know, the migrant kids and, and also the other students. So when you, authenticity is one piece of that, but we see it very much in terms of, especially with teenagers and, and that kind of thing, as, as something that is just a really fundamental way of building trust. And when you have trust of young people in a, in a group learning experience, they're then willing to take a step into the learning process. What does such a creative classroom look like in practice? What would be specific, I don't know, maybe rituals, maybe activities that take place there? Okay, yeah, good, great question. Um, and we've actually got a couple of videos on our YouTube channel um, where you can see Creative Classroom in action at Pi Global on YouTube. But the Creative Classroom, so I'll just kind of maybe describe what a Creative Classroom would look like. And, and so the training then trains teachers to be able to do this. The Creative Classroom is very inviting space for learning. So we often encourage teachers, to, and, and many teachers do this, it's, it's uh, something that teachers are very skilled at, is some teachers, is creating a really warm and inviting classroom environment where young people really want to come in and learn. Um, the teachers who go through Creative Classroom learn techniques to build community from the start of the academic year. So that could be, for example, um, playing, having some, some way, for example, up front of young people sharing something about themselves with the, with the classroom. And there's a whole bunch of activities that you can bring in. So for example, one is the I am poster and it's a poster that young people kind of create that reflects some of the things that they're interested in, who they are, where they're from. And those I am posters can go up on the walls of the classroom. Um, it would start with, um, before any kind of sitting down and, and learning, it would start with a, an experiential warm-up activity. So one that we use in our training a lot is a body rhythm. And um, this gets, this particular body rhythm that we use starts to work. It starts to get the body into the learning experience. It um, works the kind of cross-lateral connections. So you're starting to make all kinds of, you know, kind of connections in your brain for preparing it for learning. It, uh, for young people and smaller children, it's really an amazing way of kind of getting some of that, you know, kind of energy out, the physical energy out, um, so that they can then kind of focus in on learning. And it also um, builds community. So when you do a group uh, rhythm together, you are actually building connections amongst the group. You're building an opportunity for people to enjoy the time that they have together. And it actually ends up sounding really great. So it's like this one thing right at the start of the day that's an accomplishment, you know, that you've all done together as a class. Um, teachers also learn ways to teach curriculum in more creative ways. So for example, one, one example from a school that we worked with recently an Ashoka Changemaker School called Barraford Primary School in the north of the UK. Um, the teachers started experimenting with bringing more creative ways into teaching phonics. So instead of the kind of the the standard sitting at a desk and trying to you know kind of explain through writing and words what how to do phonics, this teacher decided to have two kids who then each one had each part of the of one word and they kind of jumped together 
to make a, a complete word. And so it was kind of bringing in some creativity and physical learning into how she taught phonics. And you'll see on the, if you, if you watch the creative classroom video, the kids love it. They respond very, very positively to these other kinds of ways of, of learning. And just to, to finish off, so you'd have the, you know, the creative warm up, the community building opportunities throughout for young, for kids to take creative risks. So there's a lot in, for example, in language classes, in little, doing little performances or doing writing um, poems, learning through music, you know, all kinds of different ways that you can start to build in these little creative risks. There's opportunities for reflection and debrief. So really stimulating kind of conversation and hearing what young people have to say about certain topics and inviting their, their voices into the space. And then we'd usually end, whether it's a 45-minute class or whether it's a seven-day camp, which is another format that we work with a lot, with a closing. So we really believe that just as openings and setting up the learning experience, building the community right up front is important. So are powerful closings. And so even if it's just a one-word checkout, so you get, again, every voice into the, into the space as to, you know, one thing that you learned in the class and just have a, a one word, you know, kind of checkout at the end, that is a way of just sealing the, the learning experience. So there's certain kind of frameworks that we use that come from the world of experiential learning, from group process and group dynamics, and a lot of activities that come from the world of expressive arts that really infuse the classroom with all kinds of more dynamic and engaging ways for young people to learn. I can very vividly imagine that working very well in, in primary school and in language classes, I kind of can imagine that less to work with teenagers who are too cool to, to engage in school and maybe also to work in subjects that are more formal. Um, am I right in that, in that being more challenging or how, how does it work in these other sets? Yeah, there's, so, so, um, we have, that's a, another very good question because, um, primary lends itself to the kind of creative classroom approach. There's more open curriculum, there's more openness in terms of the curriculum. It's less, you're, you're less into the, the, um, later years of, of learning that is very exam focused and content driven. However, what I would say is that um, we are this whole body of practice that we call the creative empowerment model that we use at Pi grew out of camp of uh, summer camp experiences for teens in the United States, so 14 to 18 year olds. So the practices that then we adapted to the specific needs of classroom in the case of creative classroom grew out of these summer camp experiences with teenagers. Summer camp experience is a, is a particular format. It's one that, you know, in seven days, you can accomplish more than you probably can in just doing three-hour sessions throughout the year. It's an opportunity to go very deep with teenagers. And it's the, um, so it's a special kind of circumstance where you can see these kinds of methods and, and techniques work extremely well. And so what often happens is, you know, when kids come to camp, some of them have been sent by their parents. Some of them have been referred to an organization that by an organization that they might do an after school program with. Some of them, most of them are there not because they have actually chosen to be there. So they come to camp 
And they start looking around and it's usually kind of, there's a lot of expressions of like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? And, you know, some kind of, I'm too cool to do that and this and that. And what we do at camp is that there's a very deliberate and intentional process at the very beginning of camp that really invites young people in. And there's, you know, again, a whole range of ways where young people start taking creative risks, even without realizing that they are, that that's what they're doing. And it has to do in the camp context with a very well-trained staff. And this again comes back to the types of things that we work, the types of skills and capacities and qualities that we work on with the adults who work with youth. But what we see is that there's a deep yearning actually amongst teenagers to deeply connect to themselves. There's a very strong impulse to explore issues of identity, of connection with others. A lot of young people struggle at school in the school environment, you know, that does, it's not always that friendly and not always that easy for young people to integrate and feel that sense of belonging. They also are yearning for um, experiences where they can explore their inner life, which is what the arts really gives to them. I think a lot of the um, the traditional youth work practice and traditional approaches to education just completely overlook the inner life of the young person completely. And that meet, leaves a lot of young people without any kind of outlet for that deeper kind of exploration at a pivotal time in their lives when they're making decisions about their futures, when they're really kind of um, entering adulthood and what they will take into them with adulthood um, is really kind of marked by those years. So in the camp experience, I can say with 100% confidence that these techniques work with young people, that they want to, they yearn for these kinds of experiences. You know, my own son went to one of these camps and he said, you know what, mom, I said, you know, how is camp? And uh, kind of crossing my fingers, hoping that everything that I knew about camp and the work that we do at Pi was true. But this was the moment of truth that my son had just come back from camp. And I said, D uh, you know, how is camp for you? And he said, you know what? It changed my outlook on everything. So we know that, you know, he didn't tell me much more because I'm his mother. But we <laughs> know that that, uh, that that kind of an experience can be very deep and transformational. So back to your question about high school students. These are high school students. I think the part of the issue is that the, again, that the traditional approaches to education don't lend themselves to creating these kinds of environments where young people can really explore themselves, explore their relationship in the world. What is their purpose in the world? And we see that as very much a fundamental part of a young person's education, that to divorce that from your education is not only missing a big opportunity to engage young people and kind of really develop them as full people, but also it's actually doing a, very, a huge disservice to young people who, you know, we had their stats in the United States where um, only one out of five high school students graduate high school with a sense of their purpose in this world. That's one out of five high school students. So there's, I would say that in high school setting, high school teachers tend to be more resistant to these kinds of practices because they're under a lot of pressure as well to, to deliver on, on outcomes. So on exams, on exam result and those kinds of outcomes. So it's difficult sometimes. It can be challenging for teachers to see how can I fit this in? Where does this 
help me achieve my deliverables as a teacher in terms of, you know, increasing young people's grades. What we know is also that when you bring in the arts and creative expression and you have an arts rich kind of learning environment, that actually increases academic outcomes. So I still think we're coming back to a bit of a like the, the mindset issue of we've kind of been approaching education, for example, high school education is something that's very much, you know, content driven and exam based. And I think that's changing. I think that's there's there are more openings now to um, bringing in these kinds of ways of, of working with young people. And we know very innovative um, new schools and um, head teachers and staff that are kind of pushing that forward. For example, the Ashoka Changemaker Schools Network would be an example of that. United World College, which I know you're familiar with, would be another example of that. So I think it's uh, we're committed to, to moving that forward. And I think um, we, um, from what we see, it's not a either you learn to read and maths or you learn creative methods. You can do both at the same time. And they're actually very mutually reinforcing and beneficial. One, one very interesting thing I saw in one of your recent Facebook posts was uh, that you referred to the difficulty of sometimes uh, convincing policymakers and funders that creativity is beneficial for, for some of the other outcomes. You now just said there is evidence. What do you see as the strongest evidence for that link? Well, it's a tricky one because the there so there's evidence in terms of research, big research studies that have that have been done. The ones that I'm most familiar with are coming out of the United States. They're coming out of the Yale Center for for Emotional Intelligence. They're coming out of the Berkeley Greater Good uh, Science Center. They're coming out of CASEL. So the um, it's the the kind of leading organization on social emotional learning. It's coming out of um, those are those are some of the and the Search Institute is another organization that's done a, a great deal of research around. It's usually couched in terms of social emotional learning. So I think that's um, we add the creative component into it. But what we're really developing are are those key kind of social emotional skills that we are are. It's kind of evident that they're becoming more and more um, important. So there's some some very solid research, some very big um, studies that show that social emotional learning supports academic outcomes, as well as a number of other very important things <laughs> in a person's life. For but sure. when, when we're, you know, when the kind of golden standard or what people seem to be, what a lot of policymakers seem to be very interested in is academic outcomes. There's very solid evidence that points to social emotional learning, creativity, arts-based learning, actually improving those, those outcomes. So that's the, that's, that's the research. And I, it's hard to, it's hard to understand. Sometimes I find myself, you know, in my kind of, when asking my own self, given what we know about, you know, social, the importance of developing the whole child, the whole student and the whole young person, given all the research that we know, why is it that our systems don't better reflect that? Because if, if we were talking about medicine, for example, and we knew that a certain drug, you know, just wasn't helping to cure cancer, and yet we still continued to administer that drug, that would be ethically 
completely irresponsible and there would be major consequences in doing so. But when we look at education and youth work practice, we know that so many of these practices are outdated that they actually, um, that they, especially for young people who have lived in, uh, experienced social exclusion and dis- and live in disadvantage and adverse and have faced adversity, that these systems actually are, are very penalizing to those students. So it's a very, this is why I feel, I think I feel so passionate about the work that I do with Pi and, and just so inspired by so many of the people that I get to work with in doing this work is that there's a real imperative to change. And, uh, and that's what I feel like I'm just 100% committed to in, in doing the work that I do. What you were just saying about this disconnect between the evidence base and educational practice is something that, that I'm thinking about a lot kind of day to day, because obviously at the moment I'm doing academic research, I'm based at university, and I'm very often wondering how, if at all, that, that can affect um, the educational system, while clearly other areas of life are a lot more evidence-based. Where, where do you think that connection breaks down? Is it about science communication? Is it about entrenched interests in the, in the system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, and there's probably not a, a very easy answer to that. But I think there are, just take for education, for example. Education is is something where there are political interests, there are economic interests, there are lots of interests behind um, maintaining a status quo. So, for example, companies that provide the textbooks for schools, these are companies that have a vested interest in, you know, kind of perpetuating the content-based driven kind of education system that we have. It ha- It's political in that, in even in the UK, for example, it's... Uh, the whole issue of focusing on more holistic education versus a education that is focused on almost exclusively on literacy and numeracy is a political debate and issue that has gone back and forth depending on, on who is in power in the, in the United Kingdom. And so when the interests are toward a more out, you know, academic outcome based education, it's very difficult then to move the other piece of more holistic education forward. That said, even in the UK, which is you know one one country in which we are working, movements like again the Ashoka Changemaker Schools Network, um, whole education, and the schools they're associated with with their network are, despite a lot of resistance and a lot of and, and not very much support, are trying to move the education system in a direction that does focus more on the on the education of the whole child. And it's not at the expense of academic outcomes, it's academic outcomes and everything else that a young person needs to really thrive. And something that I really like about the work you are doing and the work that Ashoka is doing is making these these cases more visible, that maybe there can be some more grassroots-led change rather than us just waiting for policies to change. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd like to step away from Pi a little bit and ask you some questions about other parts of your, your personal journey. Um, so maybe to kind of start quite early on, when I looked at your CV, I was quite surprised that you didn't start in education, you didn't start in anything that was obviously linked to, to creativity, but you started quite broadly in, in, in international development. Um, so what was it that brought you towards education and towards uh, art-based education? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And really, it's just a, a miracle that I didn't end up becoming a teacher and getting kind of more involved in formal education because my dad is, was, uh, he's retired now, uh, the head of an uh, independent school in Canada for many years. And my grandfather, who was born in the UK and eventually emigrated to Canada, was also a head teacher of many schools during his lifetime. My stepmother was the head of a well-known school in, in Toronto. So I feel like I have always been surrounded. I, I was practically born on the premises of my dad's um, school. And I've always been surrounded by teachers. I've been, you know, raised with a very strong belief in and people around me kind of working for innovation in education. And so I think something just kind of <laughs> something's in, in my DNA. I decided to to take a slightly different route. I had always been interested in international affairs. I used to, you know, kind of watch the news from my house in a city just outside of Toronto when I was little and just had a deep curiosity about the world around me. And that's what led me to political science and then international affairs and international development. Um, but I think there was something that um, that was always also kind of missing for me when I was growing up. And that is uh, the creativity and the arts piece, because I creativity and the arts have always been fascinated and drawn to. And music, for example, played a very important role in my life over very passionate about music and as an adult kind of went back to play, you know, playing it music as, as very much as an amateur, but I, something that I really enjoy. And I, um, I think with the work with, I think I, you know, when you grow up a lot of people have a similar experience, which I've discovered now through all these years of working with Pi is that when you're young, you're kind of badged as somebody who has artistic talent or not. And if you're not, you kind of lose that connection with the arts and creativity you know, it becomes something that you can consume, but not necessarily participate in. And that was my experience. And so when I went about 15 years ago, when I did this, this workshop with Pi, I, all of a sudden it was so, it was such a moment of awakening for me because it just opened this whole world of the arts back open to me, uh, back up to me. So music and visual arts and, um, and our, you know, the premise of the work at Pi is that you don't have to be a professional artist to have access to this whole world of arts. So that was very profound for me. And I kind of reconnected that within with my work with Pi. I also always love, I have always loved working with creative people. So I work with a lot of artists, a lot of people who are working very much at the grassroots community level who are creating their own culture, creating, you know, helping people find their voices, helping people see themselves as creators and not just consumers of, of culture. And um, and so I've always been drawn to working with people like that. And, and so in this work, I fortunately, I do get to do that. I think I got to a point with um, my work in international development where I just was very disillusioned with the, the whole approach of the international aid agency. I had an opportunity to work in Cambodia and in Colombia and uh, for a little while in, in New York for the United Nations. 
And I really, one thing that was missing for me in a lot of the, just the fundamental approach of, of international development was that it really doesn't always recognize the creative resources that people have inside of themselves to be able to come up with solutions to address their problems. What I saw was a lot of consultants being paid a lot of money to fly around and help in my day, it was called developing countries, but countries in the South help solve their problems. And it was just completely against what I fundamentally believed about the communities that I worked with, for example, in, in, uh, in Cambodia and in Colombia. I remember there was, you know, after working in Cambodia for about a month and seeing a population that had just been very affected, obviously, by years of, of dictatorship and, and quite um, traumatic, you know, collective history. And I was walking down the streets and I saw just I heard some music and I peeked in the door and I saw this young girl doing a learning a, a traditional Cambodian dance. And I just thought that is where the hope and the, the kind of creativity lies for this country. So I left international development and I kind of went in a different path. And at that point I said, you know what, I want to do something creative. I wanted to, um, to work with people on, on the basis of this kind of innate creativity. And that's what led me to the work that I do with Bi. I think just about that time that you were transitioning, you, you were involved in a different project that I find very intriguing, Beats to the Streets, where you were kind of eliciting creative potential in participants where probably many other people hadn't seen that. Can you explain what that program was about briefly? Sure. Yeah. So Beast in the Streets was a program and it was exactly, it was exactly that. I, with my family, we moved to back to Canada after living overseas for many years. And, um, I got together with a, a few uh, friends and, and colleagues who wanted to do, a, create a program to support youth. And in this case, it was young people who were living in and out of the homeless shelter system. A friend of mine was the director of one of these homeless shelters and was also very passionate about music. Um, and we had a friend who was a, a DJ who was very much in like the art scene in Toronto, who was also really passionate about um, doing something to engage young people through music. And then in one of these, um, one of the, the homeless shelters, there was a young man who had been, again, living in and out of these shelters, who was also himself a very talented DJ. So a group of us kind of got together and created this program called Beats to the Streets. And it was really a program that was an opportunity for young people to develop their passion for music. And as you know, like, you know, there's so much connection that young people have with music, especially like in their, you know, teenage years. And at the same time, rebuild a kind of a social network because a lot of these kids who are in and out of this homeless shelter system really live on the very margins of society. You know, they're, they're very much excluded from, from what's going on. And so this is an opportunity for them to kind of rebuild their social networks and also get some support in helping them transition back into employment, into education, and to really start making it into more permanent living situations. So really starting to make positive changes in their lives. And it was an amazing group of people. I mean, the, 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 uh, the young people who came out to the program <clears throat> really took ownership For the program, it was kind of something that was exactly in line with what made sense to them about how they wanted to kind of re-engage with, um, with a society that really, for the most part, completely rejects them. 
And we had a community college that lent us a recording studio. We had artists, you know, all kinds of artists from Toronto, singers, songwriters, rappers, um, studio technicians, that kind of thing, working with kids, with these kids to, to build their, their skills. We, they produced CDs and we did performances of their music that they had written and, and wrote. And it was at Beats in the Streets that I did this first creative facilitation workshop with the one of the co-founders of Pi, Charlie Murphy, and incorporated all of these practices. So I could see firsthand, you know, how much of a difference it made in the way that we kind of engaged these young people. So that was a little bit about um, about Beats in the Streets and and that period. Yeah, yeah, but it makes you curious to, uh, because you received a social enterprise award for it. You released a couple of CDs. You just described the energy it generated, and then still the project wasn't quite sustainable. So I think it probably ran for about five years, if I understood it correctly. Uh, what what happened to it? So um, you're right. There was a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. We we won a, a business plan competition where we were really creating a social enterprise with these young people. And um, at a certain point in time, we had secured some some core funding for the organization. And then I kind of stepped out and the program continued. And I stepped out because I ended up moving um, with a job opportunity with my husband. And I think the there was a few things that, that happened at that time. I think it was an early, early stage for one of the founders to, to step away from the program. It hadn't quite found its feet, you know, by the time I, my, my personal circumstances changed and I kind of left the, the program. So that's one thing. And I think that's just, that was a lesson learned for me as um, somebody who's also, you know, deeply committed to social change and social entrepreneurship and that kind of thing is that it really, the commitment at the beginning to really be involved for a longer period of time, perhaps than I was at the beginning It ended up transitioning over to a group that was incubating youth-led initiatives in Toronto. And this group was also fairly new. The, there was a whole movement in Toronto, and there still is, and it's just an amazing city for youth-led programs and programs that are kind of based on culture and arts and diversity and that kind of thing. And there was a group that was incubating and kind of fiscally sponsoring these emergent youth-led enterprises. And so ours was one of these programs that they were um, fiscally sponsoring and they ran into difficulties and so that program kind of shut down and so Beast of the Streets was left without a charitable status or any way of kind of carrying on organizationally and the program wound down. I remember going back to Toronto to do our kind of final wrap-up, our, our kind of farewell showcase And we invited participants who had been involved in the program for the five years to come back and perform. We invited the funders who had played such a key role in, in helping get the program up and running. And we did just a, it was just a beautiful showcase of young people kind of sharing how much the program had meant to them. And they formed, you know, real lasting friendships and lasting bonds. And many of them have now moved into adulthood and are doing really well, managed to get themselves on a on on a really positive track so that's that was the story of of beats to the streets very interesting thank you 
So from what you see in your work at Pi and around it, are there any things to beware of when you try to bring creativity and arts into education? Maybe any wrong advice that's given or any problematic approach you've seen taken? In bringing the arts into education? In bringing arts and creativity into education, yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. Well, I would say um, bringing arts and creativity into education or any learning experience is especially for, for people who don't see themselves as creative and may have had some a negative experience at one point in their lives where, you know, so many, a, a very common experience is that one of the things that we do in our workshops is singing, group singing. And for some people that causes <laughs> genuine panic. And it's, you know, there's a very common story is that, you know, people when they were little were in a choir and the choir master told them not to sing and to mouth the words or that they weren't selected for the choir because they couldn't sing. So there's all these things that come up for people when um, with some kind, with some forms of expressing themselves creatively. And so I guess the things to be aware of and something that we take extremely seriously and we put a lot of time and effort up front is to creating a really safe and supportive environment for people to take creative risks. So for example, in the case of singing, we try to bring the barriers for participation down to an absolute minimum so that there are, that we acknowledge that some people may have may not feel comfortable singing, but, you know, would they give it a try? And let's, you know, and, and just kind of different ways of bringing down those barriers for participation, which, you know, like as a facilitator, there are kind of techniques that you can just acknowledge where the group is at and where certain participants are at and invite them back in. And even that, just the, the act of acknowledging a person's experience can make them more open to then taking a step back in and, and trying something out. So I've seen other circumstances where um, in group learning processes, people have tried to bring the arts and creativity in, in a way where people feel it can where And I'm speaking for myself in, in, in some circumstances where I feel like I'm fairly comfortable with expressing myself creatively. But even I was kind of like, well, I, I'm not quite sure what's being asked of me here, you know, and I don't want to actually, you know, you kind of, I default into, I don't really want to make myself look ridiculous or kind of put myself out there. So it's very, there's a very delicate dynamic when you bring creativity and the arts into a learning experience that you, I think probably just, it would be summed up by don't assume that everyone is just, you know, kind of where you are at as a facilitator or a teacher in terms of maybe being more willing to jump into creative activities and really set the environment, kind of create that safe and supportive space that people will want to want to try out new things. And it comes from, you know, if we were to do a singing exercise, it wouldn't be the first thing that we did would do with the group. There's a whole setup that starts from the very beginning, very gently from when the participants walk into the space to then when they're actually ready for bigger creative risks. So that's, I think, what I would say just to be aware of. And, and the, the problem is sometimes when people have, not the problem, but what happens when people have those kinds of experiences is that the next time that you bring creativity in, or if they have a negative experience, the next time you bring creativity, creativity in the arts into a learning experience, there it's likely that you it's, it's going to be very difficult to get to the stage where people will want to participate. So I've seen it done very skillfully, where even the most resistant group members, and you know, like you were saying before, teenagers 
who are very aware of what their peers are thinking about them. And it's very important to them. Even the most resistant teenagers will take a creative risk when it's set up really, really well. When it's not, it just reinforces that internal resistance that some people have to participating. So it's a shame, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, clearly this, this kind of facilitation and teaching takes a lot of skill and experience. One way to, to get that is through your trainings that are, of course, linked to in the show notes. But do you have any other recommendations for people who might want to give it a try on how to get started? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are lots of free tools and resources on the Pi website. So if you're curious about what is this creative facilitation, And what, you know, what is it that look like to bring arts and creativity into a learning experience? There's lots of tools, you know, and activities and you can read through them. You can download them. And that's just one way to start sparking some ideas where the, our techniques and our activities, they come from a vast world of facilitation of bodies of practices like this theater of the oppressed and, and that kind of thing. So it's not that it's pie, they're pie activities. But they are activities that we use in our work that we can really stand behind and say, these are, are techniques that work. Um, there's lots of facilitation resources and tools available on other websites on the web. I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give to somebody is just to start, just to try something out. You know, maybe try something. And the thing is, like, teachers and facilitators know their groups better than anybody else. So might there be something, you know, might there be an activity or might there be something that you could adapt that really speaks to your group where you can invite people to take a creative risk and just try it out and see what happens and be willing to learn from the experience. You know, that's what my advice would be. Yeah, I think in moving towards wrapping this up, there are two questions that I like to ask everyone. And the first one is when you think back to the time you were, well, I guess either starting out in your career or starting out in the current phase of your career. Is there any advice you would give to your younger self with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, that's always a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I would, I mean, the advice that I would give to my younger self at this stage and just in the stage of what I've, what I've kind of learned a lot through the work at Pi, but in other experiences as well is, is that the, the importance of building really solid relationships in the work that you do to be able to, I think my education taught me a lot about how to rationally kind of analyze different situations, which is a, it's a, it's a very useful skill set. Um, it taught me a lot about, um, you know, kind of in an, in an abstract way, how to navigate different situations or what to do. Um, it taught me a lot about transactional relationships. So, you know, how to, but even just a job, you know, that you would have a job contract, your job role would be this and that. And I think my experience has taught me to kind of break out of a lot of that And the importance of relationships, the importance of building trust, the importance of connecting with other people who share your passion 
and your purpose around what you're doing and kind of connecting with them on that level of that shared purpose. Um, those are some of the things that I guess I think looking back now, I was less prepared for. And um, I don't think I was ever, we didn't do any, <laughs> There, I don't think there was any courses or any social emotional skills brought into my high school, which was a public high school in downtown Toronto. We learned from experience. But I think being more conscious that that really is um, gives you a really strong foundation for doing really effective work in collaboration with other people. And that's what a lot of my work is, is with Pi. Thank you. Yeah. And finally, if you could have a billboard anywhere to get a message out to the world, what would that billboard say? It would say, go for it. Okay. That's quite, quite <laughs> open-ended. <laughs> Yeah. And whatever that it is for you, you mm -hmm. know, whatever your it is, go for it. Great. Thank you. Is there anything I should have asked? Anything you'd like to add? Um, no, I feel like I've done a lot of the talking, Lucas, and I know that you are so um, steeped, you know, in facilitation work and social change. I just wondered if you had any reflections, any thoughts that you wanted to share that you feel like are important to share before we wrap up. Well, that's, that's unfair, turning the tables. <laughs> um, I agree with everything that, that you've said, and it's definitely given me, me some food for thought in different areas. Maybe one reflection is around how to invite people into the space and how to, how to stage that. And I think uh, I've made a lot of good experiences really working in small self-directed groups not facilitating every activity with everyone um, because it's, of course, a bit easier to take these creative risks when two or three people see you and they are ideally not perceived as, as an audience, but just as your peers on that part of the journey and then kind of build it up from there and getting everyone's voices into the space. So, for example, in terms of theatre of the oppressed, um, we've sometimes built up towards forum theatre, towards this collective problem solving in such very slow ways of you mm -hmm. really just playing with two other people without anyone watching. Um, because the other thing around around singing, around p putting people on the spot and scaring them off forever, is definitely something I, I have experienced personally. Mm -hmm. And I, I would need a lot of good facilitation to, to start singing. Yeah, I think it's, that's, that's the only reflection that, that really comes to mind. Um, in terms of lessons, lessons learned, I think what you're saying about relationships It's, it's incredibly important. One thing we are often doing in, in programs with young people is a reflection labyrinth where they spend some time on their own going through different stations, uh, thinking about different aspects of their life. Um, and one station that's surprisingly powerful there is just the station on gratitude. Who are people in your life that have touched you? Do they know that they have touched you? If they don't know, how could you let them know? And I think to, to a large extent, that's exactly about building these kinds of relationships. And both with 15, 16-year-olds and with adults where I've run this activity, that seems to be one of these moments to, to stop, think about relationships and, and commit to, to actually build them. Um, so I think it's interesting that you share that as, as your professional lesson learned. Mm. That, that might be one of the ways to help people along that way. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, but thank you very much. Um, it was very fascinating. Yeah, thank you, Lucas. And I look forward to singing with you one day. Hmm. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's see if, we, if you get me there. Cool. Thank you. Great. Well, Thank you very much. That you're doing this um, podcast series and thanks so much for including me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Have a good day. Okay, Lucas. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to this episode, Education for Social Change. If you enjoy it, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address in the show notes. Finally, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode, I'm looking at one of my favorite non-formal education projects at Catalyst. It's a program that works with pairs of teachers and students to critically explore the war on drugs in the Americas. So stay tuned. Thank you.